On today's pod, we have Dr. Roxana Suring. Roxana is one of the newest members of the Ryerson CAB faculty. In fact, she hasn't even started at Ryerson yet and won't start until September 2020. She identifies as an analytical chemist, and those that research and that interest of hers has been really encouraged in a lot of ways owing to her international exposure. In fact, you're going to hear a bit of an accent, but you won't guess where that accent's from immediately. She's got a really, really great collection of different stories and different experiences that have brought her to us, and we're happy to have her starting in September. So please lean in and enjoy my conversation with soon-to-be a familiar face, Dr. Roxana Suring. All right, everybody, welcome back to the pod. Today we have a very special guest, somebody who I doubt very many of us who are listening to this podcast will even know, but you will soon know her as she is going to start her independent research career at Ryerson in the fall. So let me introduce Dr. Roxana Suring. Roxana, welcome to the pod. Thank you for doing this. Well, you're very welcome. So I just sort of introduced, you know, what you're going to be doing at Ryerson, at least joining us. What, tell me a little bit about yourself. You have a British accent when you speak English, but I know <laughs> you're not British. So tell us about, you know, hometown, major transitions, and what got you to become part of the Ryerson community. Wow, yeah. Um, I guess I've, <laughs> I've mutated a lot um, throughout my life. So I'm from Berlin, Germany, originally, and then spent already in school quite a bit of time in the UK, hence the British accent, I guess. How, how, um, many, years were you, how many years were you in the UK? Oh, no, not years. Like this was, um, it was a student's exchange. So it was nine months in total oh, wow. um, in, a, in a little family in Manchester in 10th grade. A place with a really strong accent that could be part oh, of yeah, it. Oh yeah, and and it was it was incredible, you know, just having learned English, you know, tenth grade. I mean, we had a bunch of years, five years of English at that point, and I thought, oh yeah, I'm really good at this. And then going to Manchester, and I was in a family with a Scottish dad from the Highlands. Um, I think it took me about six months to understand a word he was saying. But, I'm already well, <laughs> laughing because I, I, when I first, I was in Edinburgh for two years. And when I first got there, I remember <laughs> not being able to talk to the person who worked at the bank and then having to use hand gestures just to figure out what they were trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was essentially and, that. So that was like, it was the Manchester accent, the Scottish dad, and then the really lovely Irish neighbors who kept inviting me for scones. And again, I didn't get a word they were saying. But after that, you know, <laughs> after that, I was pretty fluent. <laughs> so where did you do your uni then? You, that was in your 10th grade, you said. Yeah, exactly. And then for university, I moved away from Berlin um, to northern Germany, to like a small town um, around the coast, um, to Lübeck. Sort of ended up staying in, um, I guess, in coastal areas and coastal research, actually, from then on. So my background at that point, I studied environmental engineering uh, with a focus on environmental chemistry, particularly, but also uh, small scale wastewater treatment, environmental management. So sort of life cycle assessment procedures, things like that. But then ended up wanting to do my, it was the old German system. So we didn't have a separation between bachelor and master. So it was basically all the way through the master right away. And so I ended up doing my master's thesis at a research institute close to Hamburg in a very tiny town. 
about an hour out of Hamburg with like a half an hour hike from the closest bus stop. But again, you know, lovely directly at the water. And so there I ended up being in coastal research and looking at um, contaminants and how they are being transported from everyday products that we use into the coastal and marine environment. And so you, so before we go on to that next transition, you, uh, I should clarify for everybody who's new to this or listening to this, that you are now, you kind of define yourself or see yourself as an analytical chemist. That's, uh, and, and you just like to study environmental factors. But you have just talked about two very small towns and a coastline, and that's quite far from where we are in Toronto. Although we do have, you know, Lake Ontario is technically, I guess, a coastline, but just not one of the ocean. So what did you, where, how did you make that transition from, from uni, the, those, those early degrees now, to, to Ryerson? Again, through, I guess, yeah, I always call it mutating a bunch of times. So from, from doing my PhD at that research institute there, I actually ended up being quite independent, um, one might say a little bit left alone. So I was, I was basically, I didn't, when I started my PhD, there wasn't a defined project. So basically, I was told, okay, you have a lot of money we can give you to do whatever research you want to do define your project and see what you want to do with this and whether you can get a PhD out of it, which ended up working really, really well and was fantastic because it gave me these opportunities of, I met at a conference, for example, um, I met Miran Alai from um, Environment Canada down in Burlington. And uh, we found out that we were working on, or we had similar research interests. And so I asked my boss whether I could go to Environment Canada for a bunch of months to work there on looking again at contaminants, particularly in edible fish. So I ended up going to Environment Canada for three months at that point. And then Meran eventually became one of my supervisors for my thesis. And so that was sort of the first contact point with Canada. Um, and I, it was also for me, I had, I had traveled quite a bit already before. So already during my studies, I had, for example, spent six months in China building up um, or helping with developing methods as a, at a new food security lab, uh, testing lab. So I, I had caught the travel bug at some point, but this was my first time to um, North America. And yeah, I just honestly, I, I fell in love with Toronto particularly. Oh, sorry. To, sorry. You, uh, you accepted the offer uh, to join Ryerson, which we said will happen in September. So you, you right now are in Stockholm, though. Yes. <laughs> so after, after having done my PhD and being in Canada and really wanting to, to go back to Canada, actually, I had a postdoc offer. I met my husband, a Canadian, but in Germany, and he wanted he had just left Canada. So we decided to stay in Europe for a bit longer and ended up going to the UK first, where I worked as a regulatory, scrutinizing regulatory methods, basically, for risk assessment of chemicals. Then we decided we wanted to um, move on further in Europe and ended up going to Stockholm to the Department for Environmental Science here at Stockholm University. Again, looking at contaminants mostly in fish and um, in the Baltic Sea, uh, but also more in freshwater. So there was a bit the transition from, from the ocean towards the freshwater. 
sort of see it moving. I, I was just thinking, you know, those, you know, those world maps that have like pins in them and then you tie strings between the different pins. Like you're trying to solve like a, a crime scene or track someone's movement over the globe. I'm just thinking your map must be spectacular. It would look like a quilt. <laughs> it would have so many threads on it. Yeah, it feels a bit like that sometimes. But I, that's well, the thing. I mean, I, I absolutely love the whole, the opportunities to travel and to meet different people and to collaborate with different people all over the globe. And so I really took that opportunity from my PhD on and even before that. And so, yeah, but then from Stockholm, this was a two-year project here at Stockholm University. And so I was looking into, finally, my husband was willing to go back to Canada. So I looked into opportunities to come back to Canada and saw this fantastic opportunity at Ryerson. We are so glad that it worked out and you are actually now joining us. Um, and that, just to clarify, your husband is French Canadian, right? Quebecois? Yes. It's great having you here. So tell us, tell us about what, uh, especially maybe for the students as well um, in the audience, what are you going to be researching when you come to Ryerson? Yeah, so I'm staying with this theme of novel contaminants from sort of everyday products in the aquatic environment. So now moving from the salt water towards aquatic in general. And so there I'm, I'm really interested in chemicals that are added into different plastics and that are still water soluble and can then get through um, particularly wastewater treatment plants and be very stable, long lasting, so persistent and often toxic uh, drinking water contaminants. And so there, there's been some research on that, but it's still a, very, a fairly new area in terms of looking at uh, this as environmental contaminants. So there's been questions around, for example, pesticides and food security, things like that. But there's been this, this growing concern about substances that we never thought would be particularly stable in the environment, but that now have been found in, in high concentrations, for example, in the Canadian Arctic, in water and where there are now issues sometimes that you know in first nations communities despite the canadian arctic being such a water rich area that there are drinking water clean drinking water shortages and so these are questions that i really would like to look into so what how do these contaminants get for example to remote places where are they also how do they get for example into drinking water what are priority contaminants in terms of drinking water contaminants and water security. So which means which contaminants are actually out there that can get through wastewater treatment and that can then are long lived enough in water to make it through, for example, then a water cycle back into drinking water, into groundwater resources. Can I ask a curiosity question here? Because uh, now we're going down the rabbit hole a little bit because I'm, yeah. you just naturally, <laughs> naturally got me thinking. So surface water would obviously be different than groundwater in terms of yes. the con contamination. So, so you, while you might expect it gets in surface water, how is it actually getting into the groundwater if, if you are using, let's say, an underground well or something like that? Is that sort of, you would expect to see major differences or does this all sort of level out in the end in terms of contamination? Uh, well, that's, the, that's an interesting question, actually, where there is a lot of need, research still needed, because there are quite a few substances that there's basically a mixed layer between, for example, a riverbed 
and then underlying groundwater resources. And so yeah. this mixed, mixed layer in between is essentially, it's not water, it's not pure soil, but it is fairly saturated soil with water, basically. Through that, there are certain contaminants that can get into groundwater resources, for example. But the question is really, what are the different drivers there? Because for some contaminants, there seem to be barriers there, and for others, there aren't. And so there are substances like, um, if we think about these um, polyfluorinated substances that have been discussed a lot as uh, so-called forever chemicals, because they are so persistent in water. For example, outdoor um, jackets, but also um, kitchenware, different, oh, even paper, for like, example. Like, so these are substances that are both water and fat repellent. Okay. Um, and so they are, they are used a lot uh, for anything where you want these properties. So they are like really the, the, the application is, you would almost say limitless. They are used in medical equipment, for example, as well. Right. for like body fluids, fluids. Yeah. Um, but yeah. they've, been, they've been used so much that by now we really, we find them absolutely everywhere on the globe. And they yeah. are like the environmental half-lives are hundreds of years. Yeah. And those ones, for example, are um, commonly found in uh, groundwater as well. Do you have a model organism? Like you've studied fish a lot as your, like as your contamination source. Are you looking at just water, just the water sample itself, I guess you would because it's your control, but is there other model organisms that, like I'm just thinking that maybe there are bacteria or things that break down some of these compounds that you're talking about? Well, I mean, in terms of, for example, bacterial communities or, you know, very small animals, it's difficult to get enough biomass to actually extract any contaminants from them just because in terms of the detection limits wouldn't be low enough. So in terms of the actual analysis, it'll be uh, predominantly water. It might also be like, it's very interesting in terms of the prioritization, for example, to look at wastewater effluent, for example, influent versus effluent to see what actually gets through a wastewater treatment plant. What I'm very interested in is since, as I said, these are substances that are used as plastic additives that I'm particularly want to, want to focus on. So a lot of the times what I'm wondering about is, are these substances actually truly dissolved or are some of them bound in plastics, in microplastics? And to what extent are, for example, the co-contamination of microplastics and these additives changing the potential effect? And the uh, potential like a transport, like a nanocapsule or a capsule. Exactly. The huh. potential environmental hazard. Because, I mean, you might actually even have that, you know, the plastics accumulate in in the fish's intestines and then act as constant donors for these substances into the fish's body. So those are, those are questions I, I want to look into. In terms of model organisms, I mean, I usually, um, I've been working with fish mostly. Um, and so that's, I guess, kind of what I feel most comfortable with. But at the same time, I would uh, be very interested in collaborating, um, particularly with, uh, for example, microbiologists who are looking into these bacterial communities in freshwater, but also, uh, for example, wastewater treatment plants to look at, okay, so what are protect potentially the different bacterial communities that are able to break down specific type of substances? Perfect. 
This is awesome. Okay, so um, I normally have a question about teaching. So we're just going to switch gears a little bit now. But the teaching question I know because you haven't started yet. And I also know that you and I will be teaching a grad course together. So for all Yay. of you grad student <laughs> listeners out there, it'll be called the title of the course is Energy and the Environment. I hope I have that right. I think that's what it's called. Um, and so we'll be co-teaching that in winter 2021. And so you can always follow up with us and that course then. But I do have some questions about uh, maybe from a student perspective where students can benefit not just from, from hearing about the research, but also what inspires you and what makes you tick. So what is it do you like best about being a researcher? I think I'm, I'm a naturally curious person, honestly. And I like... I like to be able to ask more and more questions and then, you know, explore and connect different ideas and possibilities for explaining phenomena. And that was something that drew me towards the, the um, natural sciences, particularly. What would you say that you like least about research? then? <laughs> uh, the need to constantly apply for funding. <laughs> I think that sucks too. It seems like that's all I've been doing since, the, the, since I've been at home. Um, and so what, what inspires you, I guess, in coming back to that, maybe that curiosity idea, but, but maybe something on the edge of what is it that really drives you to, uh, to this? Well, to be fair, um, I mean, I, am a, I consider myself an environmental analytical chemist. So I put the environmental first there. And for good reason, because at the end of the day, I think I am a bit of an idealist when it comes to that. And yes, I would like to leave this world a better and cleaner place and contribute to solving some of these environmental issues. And yeah. that world perspective that you have from traveling, I mean, you've seen different standards of living all over the world. And, and, yes. uh, and, and certainly that must, that must have driven some of this desire, but it also gives you that it's consistent with all of those things you just mentioned. Sorry, and it was even already um, in the, I was very lucky with the, this like undergrad slash master's program that I had in Germany, which was very diverse. And my former classmates ended up in all sorts of different directions. And many of them with these kind of idealistic goals, I guess. So one colleague of mine, for example, is building small scale wastewater treatment plants in, in Africa. So I guess, you know, we were sort of taught that way. Yeah. And, and, that, and it's, 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 that's really good. I think one of the things too often, um, and I can make it to comment on this, too often students come with a very, very narrow set of blinders that they are going to university to do this. So did yeah. you ever feel, actually, let's go back even further. Did you know what you wanted to be as a kid? Like, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> that's, that's, oh, uh, what did I want to be? All sorts of things. I wanted to be, at some point, an opera singer. Um, I wanted to be a doctor. I'm pretty sure I wanted to be an astronaut at some point. But no, I had, in, in short, I had absolutely no idea. Uh, to be honest, I think I didn't have an idea what I wanted to be, even at the point where I started studying. So actually, after finishing high school, I started studying physics. So I mean, I knew I wanted to be in the sort of natural sciences. Um, because of this curiosity and because I felt it, it was giving me all of these different opportunities. But then physics was, yeah, I, there was a, I felt it was calculations for calculations sake. 
And so I needed a bit more applied sciences and that's what um, brought me to engineering. And then I found this environmental engineering course that had a really broad spectrum of different directions you could go into. Like I looked at this and it was like, there were so many different things I could potentially learn, so many different directions I could go into. Um, and that really appealed to me because again, you know, I'm, I guess I'm a very curious person in that way. So it was since, you know, uh, physics had worked out for me. This one was something where I was thinking, you know, there are so many different perspectives here. If this is not exactly what I want to do, I will have, I have a fair chance of figuring out what I want to do on the way. And I guess I'm, I, I still feel like very often that I'm still figuring out what I want to do. Me too. So good. I'm glad to hear, I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one. <laughs> do you, do, so you know, with such a breadth uh, of, of area, were, were you a, like, I often find that it's hard to, you know, it's the, the expression in English is you're the jack of all trades and the master yeah. of none, right? So did you have, did you have, were you a good student? Like was, while well, yeah, I'm sure you enjoyed it and you're obviously a good student because you're curious, were you a good student academically? Yeah, I would say I, I was doing, I was doing fairly well. I mean, it was, the, the German system can be, can be quite tough. So we had, we had a lot of courses where you would sometimes have 90 or even 100% failure rates. I did not pass all of my exams first go and with like, you know, top marks or anything. There were quite a few courses that I just passed, but still, yeah, I was, I was doing well. What, what drove you when you failed? What drove you to continue? A mix, I guess. I, one thing was that I, the teachers, the teachers were quite good at showing us where where this was potentially going. So with this breadth of this course, they also they gave us quite a few opportunities to meet with professionals, for example, from very different disciplines, jobs. So like they invited, for example, someone from the um, forensics department at the local police to talk about what they were doing with their chemistry research, or they invited um, more like mechanical engineers and so on. So, so th this, was, this was really helpful, I've, I found, because it was given us this perspective of, yeah, if you get through this, there's so many opportunities for you out there. And so that was, that was very motivating. I think some of it was also just to defy these teachers. <laughs> and one, one person I interviewed earlier said, you know, how did you get here and why chemistry? And they're like, out of spite <laughs> because, because they were my hardest teachers in high school. So I just wanted to show them and prove them wrong. <laughs> Exposures and, and perspectives to other people's way of lives are certainly, I think, uh, very encouraging. And that's definitely why we're, we're doing this podcast. What, um, what would you, let's talk about more about students before we get into these little fun rapid fire questions. What, What's, if you know, you're going to be a supervisor of many students over your career, what, what do you feel are some of the more important uh, transferable skills that you would like your students, so not necessarily technical skills, but the ones that, mm. that, that would work over all areas? What do you think are the, some of the important ones? Well, I think in general, there is the having an open mind and a critical sense in a way. So not taking everything at face value, but at the same time, also being open to if things don't work you, the way you thought or you hoped for, maybe that's actually the most interesting result. And that is what gives you the next question and the next, the next avenue for, for investigation. 
And that's um, very consistent with somebody who's traveled the world and has done like, like I said, it seems like a really good answer. Yeah. <laughs> curious, open-minded, critical sense, not, not being too quick to judge, but, but, but evaluating all the time and, and then exposing yourself to wherever, wherever the, the path leads as opposed to trying to stomp down a path that may not even exist. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, and, and also, yeah, really having, being passionate about what you're doing. And I think that's, I mean, that's not in, in the sense, I guess, a transferable skill, but maybe more a, a just personal trade and advice for anyone. Like, you know, if you want to be a graduate student or even, you know, go towards a PhD, towards an academic career or any job, honestly, try to find love for what you're doing there. And I actually think that's, you can, if I rephrase that, um, you can put it into transferable skill, being self-aware, right? Like knowing yeah. what, what drives you and not necessarily yeah. what your parents have told you, you should become, right? Absolutely. Finding your own identity and place in the world. And so when you think, actually, you know what, let's get to the rapid fire questions because I think they're <laughs> fun and we'll come back to advice you might give your, your younger self later. So this, this section is literally just light hire, whatever comes to mind um, and not meant to be too tough. So, but it gives us a sense of, of the other you, not the one that we would necessarily see in the classroom. So question one, what, what factoid do my colleagues and, and they could be your current colleagues or your future colleagues know least about me? Oh, I love pen and paper role play games. <laughs> Ah, I'm a, okay. I'm a terrible nerd that way. <laughs> okay, pen and paper role playing games. Now I know what to get you. We could always mix that with um with adult alcoholic beverages or something like that after work. What famous person, current or otherwise, would you most like to go for dinner with, and why? Oh wow. Ah, oh, that's a tough one. Hmm. It could be any famous person who you'd like to go to with, not the most famous. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's really tough. Okay, I we're think, come back. I think oh, no. no, I think oh. I would have to go with Hannah Arendt. Who uh, is I don't Hannah know if Arendt? you <laughs> Hannah Arendt. She is a a political philosopher, and I I absolutely I absolutely love love her books. She's she's written a lot about critical thinking, most of all. And basically personal political empowerment. And I just love, I love the way she thinks and she articulates thoughts and has discussions in her own head, apparently. And so I would, I would just love to, to experience that mind. I, in a conversation. I, assume, I assume that's a German name. Is she, does she have translations in English? Yes, she's mostly published in in English. Okay. She um she fled from from Nazi Germany to uh, the U.S. and then and published mostly there. She passed she away. Alive? No, oh. she passed away a, a couple of years ago. So unfortunately, that's not a dream that will be fulfilled. No, but you can always not. imagine, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's what this is all about—just these fun little questions. Okay, so what is your favorite food? <laughs> oh, favorite food. Whew been my husband's breakfast um, and what does he make <laughs> he makes well it's it's over easy eggs with a slice of cheese basically melted into that with like roasted veggies and um homemade sourdough bread whoa i was i nice. was vegan before i met him 
I can never uh, be vegan again because of that breakfast. <laughs> I was I was wondering if you would have said fish after dissecting all those fish, but I, okay. So you were vegan, and now you are. I guess you, I guess you, you let room for eggs in. Yes, exactly. Okay, so what what is your favorite beverage then? Oh, I think I have to be stereotypical there um, and have to go with beer. Oh, you've you, you kept your passport. <laughs> you know, they're not, they're not going to renounce your German passport now. Okay, so what is your favorite color? Green. Green. That, kind of leafy green. Yeah, are you, are you looking outside right now? Actually, what, it must yes. be. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm just saying that because if you're in Sweden, you're much farther north. The days are going to get really long there now, yeah. right? Yeah, right now it's... Looking outside, I mean, it's now a uh, quarter to nine in the evening and it looks like about four in the afternoon. Wow. So it's, you're kind of looking at those same green leafy trees that I'm looking out, out at my window <laughs> too. It's actually 28 degrees in Toronto right now, just wow. so you know. Um, That's and incredible. The humidity is starting to build. Actually, it's like the, only the third nice day of the year. <laughs> so complete, complete this sentence. If I was not a professor at Ryerson, I would like to be? A dancer. What kind of dance? Blues and Lindy Hop. Okay. We're learning lots about you today. This is amazing. Okay. <laughs> Something that is in the top 10 of your bucket list. Kind of the bucket list. Oh, diving in a shipwreck. Oh. I, I love well, diving. I absolutely love diving and I've not had a chance to do shipwreck diving yet. Okay. So that was exactly the same thing that Sean McFadden, our technician, said. He is actually a trained <laughs> diving instructor and he you you will have to listen to his podcast, which will I'll also share with you. Uh, because that's what he does all the time in the Great Lakes. Okay. So there's lots of um, shipwrecks from the War of 1812 um, between Britain and the United States. So there yeah. you've got somebody to take to take you out into the into the lake and see all the best wrecks. Okay, that's so who who is <laughs> see that this is what happens when you when you get to know all these people. You can connect people, whether awesome. virtually or yeah. So who is so who is your favorite role model? My favorite role model. Hmm. Um, Miriam Diamond, University of Toronto, uh, professor there in environmental chemistry. <laughs> and soon um, to be collaborator. No. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've worked with Miriam a lot and she's mentored me a lot. And she is, yeah, honestly, she's, she's just a, she's a fantastic person in terms of political activism fiercely protective and supportive of her students brilliant mind from a you know scientific mind um she studied i, I don't know how many different things uh, i don't know how many masters she has at this point um really fantastic person and i'm i'm so, very very happy that i have a chance to work with her sounds like somebody i have to meet unless she votes conservative so what what is your what would you say is your greatest achievement my greatest achievement Ooh. I think uh, giving birth to my son <laughs> from a personal point of view. <laughs> you are a petite woman, and so I couldn't imagine how, how that, that, would, that would go. And, but I, obviously your son is, and you just have one child, right? Yes. And but so, that was, uh, yeah, 36 hours, <laughs> no painkillers. 
that you was... should have seen the face I just made. <laughs> you said that. <laughs> I was like, ow. No, but but that was that was amazing. But other other than than from a physical point of view, I guess building up a dance scene in a small town in England was something I, I was I'm really proud of as well. Cool. Um, what was your greatest failure? Greatest failure. Um, ooh. Honestly, I think my entire art class in high school. <laughs> Any of them. <laughs> <laughs> what what are other than other than your um than your than labor not lasting 37 hours, what are what are you most grateful for? Most grateful for <sighs> definitely meeting my husband but also all of these opportunities to travel and all the, like the people I got a chance to meet. So for me, you know, people make home and people make experiences and places. And yeah, I've been very lucky with that. And hopefully when you come here, we can extend that family for you and make it feel even, uh, even warmer. What, what concerns you the Absolutely. most? What concerns you the most moving forward? Just, it could be anything really. We'll keep you up at night. Honestly, right now, uh, just a lot of visa organizational craziness. That's that's really been been stressful right now. But I think in general, you know, I'm I'm nervous about this job. I'm of course I'm nervous. I feel like I'm being given again such an amazing opportunity, and you know, I don't want to blow it. <laughs> one one day at a time. You know what? You said something. Exactly. I, I, if I regrouped, what concerns you most? It's bureaucracy. <laughs> That's what concerns oh. me the most. And I was just thinking <laughs> that as you said visas and stuff, and I was like, yeah, but Germany is renowned for bureaucracy and like how it makes keeps the system going. So I'm sure you'll get through all of well, that. Yeah, and and honestly, my husband calls me his his bureaucratic paladin because I'm usually quite good with these things. But oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> There's a limit even for this for this German Germany um, educated bureaucracy brain. <laughs> what what spot in the world do you most like traveling to? Oh, so somewhere where I've been before. Um, well, yeah, usually, yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Well, so far, I I I would have always answered this this question with Canada. Now I feel like, well, I'm moving there, so it's not going to be in that sense traveling anymore. It's um, a big country, though. It's a big yeah, country. that is very true. And I haven't seen much of the West Coast yet. I've been, I've been to BC once, but um, I would definitely like to explore that more. Very cool. So I'm what still going to go with Canada. <laughs> then I, that's, that, that'll help your, when you try to get your, your visa as well. <laughs> 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 what is your most productive time of day? Well, I'm a morning person. You My do. husband hates me for it, but I'm a morning person. <laughs> what is your favorite hobby? Uh, again, dancing. It's <laughs> I'm I'm a bit boring with that, but <laughs> no, that's you can dance anywhere. That's the best part. And sometimes people will yeah. think you're crazy, but otherwise, it's okay. Um, no, I've done, what... I've danced pretty much everywhere as well. <laughs> <laughs> what piece of advice would you give your second year self? Apart from you can do this, I think really, you know, keeping this bigger picture in mind, 
um, like try to find meaning for yourself in what you're being taught, because sometimes um, this might not be obvious, um, but actually taking this moment, despite all the, all the stuff, all the busy schedule, all the stress with exams or whatever, taking this moment to, to um, you know, step back for a moment and think about, okay, so why, why is this important to me? Why do I want to know this? Always a good piece of advice. Okay, so we're living in this time of COVID. And so we have, obviously, everyone's having different challenges. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges that you've had in this situation right now? Um, well, I mean, here in Sweden, it's been, it's been a bit parallel world, you know, like we haven't had a lockdown. So which right now leads to, for example, challenges with even being able to leave the country because all the surrounding countries won't open the borders towards Sweden. So there's a lot of, I guess, challenges around that, that, you know, not being able to visit my family, for example, being, yeah, being far away from loved ones, which, which I think, you know, obviously a lot of people have experienced. For sure. Um, so do you, have any, do you have any strategies for coping for that? Um, yeah, we've, well, I mean, we've really um, cranked up the online chatting, talking, Skyping, Zooming, uh, communication channels, basically. So, yeah, we are talking to my parents at least once per week and to my um, husband's family as well, to friends. We, we have group, group coffee hours with colleagues. And, um, yeah, we have even, I'm, I'm right now joining a um, dance choreography uh, performance group online and um, things like that. So coping through through uh, media through online media, <laughs> and just think of all the time you're saving and not driving everywhere. You can do probably many more things a day with the because you don't have to commute. True, although having you... a two-year-old at home also limits that. <laughs> Do, doesn't doesn't he like to dance too? <laughs> oh, he loves it. <laughs> well, there you go. What uh, what would you say is your silver lining in this pandemic? Honestly, from a, from a scientific point of view, particularly, um, I just joined a completely virtual uh, international conference. And that one, I thought it was, it went surprisingly well. They did this really, really well. And I felt this conference was more accessible for people because there weren't costs associated with traveling, for example. There were more PhD students, for example, joining that and even undergraduate students, just because, you know, it wasn't such a, such a heavy financial burden. Also, what it's I thought was, then. yes, it was more inclusive, but it was also what I thought was really great was all talks were pre-recorded and you could leave comments. And so you had um, this asynchronous discussion about talks where you could see all the questions other people were asking. And you could go back in the talk if you had missed something. So I, I felt like from a scientific point of view, I actually got more out of this than from um, some conferences where, you know, you sit through talk after talk after talk, and then you maybe have one question, a time for one question, and then the, you know, speaker disappeared. So there, there was really a lot of time for, for questions and answers for the different talks. So I'm really cool. hoping that some of these technologies are going to be or some of these mechanisms are going to be used more to in the future you know um, make some of these conferences more inclusive yeah have these talks available 
This has been fantastic. Um, in the interest of time, we're going to have to wind up our conversation. But I just wanted to, and we're going to have you back on the pod for sure in the future because you're going to have teaching experiences. You're going to have a whole new set of bureaucracy that we can talk about <laughs> while playing oh, yeah. role-playing games and drinking <laughs> beer um, and playing awesome. your next scuba scuba adventure with Miriam Diamond. So we're going to we're going to bring it all together <laughs> the next time. <laughs> anyway, <Sounds good. laughs> uh, thank you so much for doing this, Roxana. We had a wonderful time, and um, we wish you all the best moving forward as you go through this visa trouble, and hopefully uh, we will see you very soon. But yes, thank you very much again for this, and uh, we will catch up with you again soon. Thank you.